Is it weird that you're hearing my voice twice on this episode? As a reminder, I'm doing a voiceover of an episode that happened a few weeks ago because I screwed up the audio, recorded it incorrectly, so I'm re-recording the audio and you will occasionally hear me as I recorded it on the day of, and you're hearing me as I'm re-recording it weeks later. I hope it's not confusing. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. Neighborhood right now, 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 right but okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it where it is. Okay, everyone, this is a very disappointing episode of the Wedge Life Podcast. I totally messed up my audio, didn't use the right microphone, and it sounds terrible. So I'm your host, John Edwards. I'm re-recording the audio, and we're gonna see if any of it makes sense. My co-host today is Jason Garcia. Uh, we recorded this episode uh, like. A week ago, I forget, two weeks ago, our guest today is John O'Cogill, not Cowgill, although I do make a joke coming up in the episode about uh, fish and cow emoji. That's not how it's pronounced. It's pronounced Cogill. It's a better way to go. Okay. Well, we're going to say it right. People can remember it that way, but yeah, it is. I say Cogill. Out of respect, we'll pronounce it correctly on this episode. Appreciate it. This is where I talk about the rivalry on Twitter between John O'Cowgill and co-host Jason Garcia. Jason has been mean to John on Twitter. <laughs> he wrote a, a series of tweets to make a, a story, a little fiction. Yeah, I, I just appreciate the uh, the 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 narrative fiction uh, Twitter thread uh, that Jason did last year, and uh, <laughs> uh, hoping to see more guy. in the future, and hoping hoping also that it publishes a zine at some point. Describing me as a uh, tall, handsome, and muscular, Jono was the villain. Well, yeah, I mean, I hope I'd be described as kind of pathetic and groveling and. Oh, well, you okay. you seized power because you were the head of the last remaining uh, <laughs> city government. Uh, Only the, park, the parks board remained. And my first question is going to be, what is the park board? Tell us about the park board, what it is, why it's significant. And let's go to Jono's answer. The, the, the park board uh, is unique, and I think that's something that people don't realize often, that there aren't 
other uh, elected boards that oversee specifically the parks in the United States. Uh, in fact, the only uh, similar model that I'm aware of of a city our size is in Vancouver in Canada. So there, there really aren't a lot of uh, ancillary comparisons. Um, when people say, well, the park board should do X, Y, or Z, it's like that might be true within our, uh, our specific world, but it's not something that can be comparable across cities because there's not something very similar. Uh, other thing that people maybe don't know is that the legislature, le- legislature created us. Uh, and uh, as such, there's a certain amount of you know, authority that the legislature has <laughs> over uh, what, what the park board does. Uh, and certainly the park board benefits a lot from, from uh, state dollars for all sorts of things. So th- those are two, two big things. And then finally, that we levy our own tax. So yes, the mayor proposes a budget. He proposes something uh, for what the park board should get. Uh, but it's the Board of Estimate and Taxation, obviously, as you both know well with your work on understanding and uh, learning about and interviewing BET uh, prospective members. Uh, that really sets uh, what the final levy is. And... Uh, the board gets to recommend what it thinks the levy should be for itself. I asked Jono if he has enjoyed being park board president. Obviously this is, he has not enjoyed that at all. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. That's probably the best thing I can say about it. Uh, it has been a challenge. And I think that any position that's set up to have a certain amount of authority, but also not have the vestiges to support that, authority is is difficult so what i mean by that is like i don't get paid a full-time salary to do this work i have no staff there's no policy staff there are no aides um you know the 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 board is really set up to uh kind of evaluate proposals and vote them up and down and then to evaluate the budget um but it's become a very political uh organization. Uh, maybe it has always been that. I've heard that there have been infighting for a long time. And in fact, there was a situation where folks almost came to fisticuffs maybe 20, 30 years ago at a board meeting. So, you know, the the infighting or the, the kind of uh, struggles with the board back and forth on different sides has always been, has always been a thing. Um, and that's an ongoing challenge. Right here, I make a joke about fisticuffs, saying that that feels like a meeting I watched <laughs> this year. Uh, I'm referencing a time when uh, uh, Commissioner Dietzik was on the board, but uh, long, long ago at this point. Right here, I asked Jono if he has a policy agenda to run on as a, an individual commissioner. How much power does he have to enact that agenda? Uh, the balance of power with staff, with the superintendent? What is his power as an individual commissioner? So, so as as a commissioner, you need five votes to do anything. So, certainly, there is uh, just like in any political body, an ability to maybe use the bully pulpit to say that you think X, Y, or Z thing needs to happen. But you know, the the only authority the board has is to vote up and down a variety of considerations, of resolutions, or ordinance changes, and. Um, the president, the only other real authority the president has is to set the agenda for a meeting. So, you know, I talk to the, pre- the superintendent all the time. I might say, hey, superintendent, I really think 
that, uh, you know, at this park, you should move the picnic tables. Well, I can't just tell him to, I mean, he could do it or not. You could also say, well, John, you need five votes to direct me to move the picnic tables. Right here, I make a joke comparing uh, 14 bosses, that trope that's been used about the city council to the park board, and I make it nine bosses. We don't have a nine bosses situation, John, do we? We don't have a nine bosses. We do not have uh, an executive elected, uh, so to speak, but we, but we do two really important things as a board. We hire the superintendent, who is the operational head of the organization, and we set the budget every year. Those are the two most important things the board does. Yeah, that provide guidance about how you should operationally do the work. Unfortunately, what happens with every uh, elected person is that they get constituent demands and requests uh, all the time. And there's a calculus uh, and commissioners do things in different ways where they might want to really lobby a staff member to get something done efficiently for them. Um, I don't think that's going to change no matter what the charter necessarily says i mean people have relationships with folks in the in the city and, and the park board jason can it's i tell frustrating you, uh, to me oh go ahead no Sorry. go i want to hear your frustrations tell us your frustrations well, <laughs> it's it's been frustrating to me to see uh, uh a bit of um kind of a There are people that really care about the park system, and that's fantastic. There are people that have been involved in the park governance and in the park system for a very long time. Um, and this is no different probably at the city level as well. But they're still able kind of to wield influence. They know the right emails to email. Uh, and that can, be, that can be frustrating when you're trying to create a system where everybody has equal access and influence to um, you know, build a, a better park system, um, seeing that that they're, they're mechanisms and levers for, for folks who just kind of know how to connect with the right people to, to get things done is an ongoing frustration and surprise that I, that I found when I got on the board. Okay. I asked Jason if I can tell a story. I don't really need to ask Jason's permission because this Absolutely. is my podcast. Absolutely. You can. I tell the story about being heckled at open streets by a member of the park board <laughs> and ask Jono to guess which of his colleagues was the, the heckler. Oh man. I don't, Oh, I'm nervous about even suggesting who I think it was, but you were at open streets, West Broadway. Uh, so I'm just thinking about who would be up there. Yeah. I tell him it was West Broadway. Well, I mean, in ward five, I, I, I I would I would say perhaps it was Severson, but I just don't. He doesn't seem like a heckler. And then you have uh, Vice President Vita, who does live up there and is running for city council. It was Latricia Vita. She was the one who heckled me. I see. She said, "There's the mean person." She shouted it as I was walking past. I looked and I waved, <laughs> kept going, didn't engage. She called out, "Yeah, we used to be friends. Not, not really true. We didn't used to be friends at all. We were nice to each other, but <laughs> we weren't friends. Mm. Wow. 
she uh, always got so much joy uh, every time you made fun of my hair. And uh, back when I, well, probably could still make fun of my hair that I'm losing, but, you know, really could have made fun of my hair back when I had kind of crazy hair. And she got a lot of joy out of those uh, posts. I told Jono, if anyone should be heckling me about how mean I've been, it should be Jono. (laughs) I've been merciless about his hair. We've set aside (laughs) some time here, Jono, if you would like to heckle John. I feel bad about it. (laughs) Go ahead. Tell me. I I don't have this. I don't have the skill for that. No, I'm just glad that folks are paying attention to what the hell is going on locally on a tell daily basis. Tell, tell him you can tell he cuts his own hair. <laughs> it's true. I don't, I do cut my own hair. It's not great. Honestly, pretty surprised. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm surprised you're not going to, uh, to Kenwood, uh, barbers, uh, just there by, by the ice cream it shop. occurs to me that this is probably a really bad episode, uh, but we're going to keep going. <laughs> they don't let him on that side of Hennepin. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, right here. I ask, why is the park board so terrible? <laughs> a lot of assholes on the park board. Yeah. I don't like anyone on the park board. Yeah. Maybe Jono, maybe Chris Meyer. It's the kind of place flies under the radar like the BET tends to attract people who've got a lot of time on their hands like to fight it's not a full-time job doesn't pay well no need to be either really angry at other human beings or be an angel who wants to do good in the world what's going on with Brad Bourne <laughs> I've seen Jono get irritated so with Brad questions. Bourne oh, did, over and over visible? No. it's extremely visible I, you hate this man. He hates you too. Yeah. <laughs> you can be honest. I try to be magnanimous. I try to be magnanimous. It's been a frustration. I uh, with with me uh, and Brad. I, I what would I say? I mean, the park board is the intersection of uh, real estate interests, uh, conservation interests, and educational interests. Uh, in you know the interests of how we keep our kids safe and keep them active. And that can lead to a lot of friction because there are very different ideas about and philosophies about what should happen with those things. I think the park board was set up to be kind of the city father's organization to protect land that was deeded by wealthy people to the city um, and to give them some confidence that, you know, their, their uh, generosity was a really great thing that was going to be protected by the right people. And I think what we found, uh, especially with the board that was most recently elected, is that now you got a much more diverse board and it's not people that come from land, (laughs) you know, that a lot of people that aren't necessarily, you know, they're renters, maybe. I was a renter when I got on the board. Uh, I now own a small, tiny condo, so I'm still not really a landowner. And... um, uh, and I guess what I'm saying about that is that like, yeah, I mean, there are just these uh, folks that uh, the board set up to be a place for folks that don't need to have uh, don't need to have another job. Um, and and they're also given this substantial opportunity to uh, oversee 15 percent of Minneapolis land. So that's a lot of a lot of land. And as my. Uh, Republican grandfather uh, developer has 
often said to me, they don't make more land. So developers uh, always want to get their hand on whatever land already exists and have an influence on, on that land. And I think that's what brings a lot of the friction into the city. So are you going to be making sure the land is for the people? Or are you making sure that the land is benefiting, um, you know, the, the folks that can, that can make money off of it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think what you were just talking about really dovetails with one of the things that I wanted to ask about. Um, because one of the things that I see as being a problem with an elected park board um, not that I don't think it should, we should have an elected park board, but one of the areas where um, the flaws can be taken advantage of are when you look at, again, the people who have the money and time to go to park board meetings, to incessantly lobby their park board members, um, and uh, you know, having at-large members, is that... To your point, it really does shift the focus from, you know, how can parks be used by people who maybe don't have their own backyard, maybe don't have a place to meet their entire family and barbecue for someone's birthday or something like that, versus what bothers the people who happen to live around the parks. Um, And I think we saw that writ large last summer um, with the unhoused crisis reaching a a terrible point where people, you know, had no options but to live in the parks. So when you look at that, um, can you talk about like what sorts of pressures you feel from people who live around the parks and how they, Mm. you know, Mm. want to have a, a broader voice? Because that's something I hear in Minneapolis a lot is like, well, you have to listen to the people who live close to the parks right um which when you look at how un um unevenly distributed around the city the parkland is i'm not sure that that's really a realistic stance to have right well okay yeah there's a lot in there so i i guess uh and and that's really really good question so uh on on the park board being elected uh, it probably would be more, or it probably it would definitely be uh, less publicly, politically messy if there was not a uh, an elected body that oversaw the parks. I don't think it would be a better system. I don't think we would have the top system that we have because we protect so much money that would otherwise be taken away for other uses by the city if it was just a city department. Um, I think we have a benefit for just how robust our park system is um, relative to park systems around the country. Um, but that's just a, an aside. I believe in the park system. I believe in, our, in having a, a, a board uh, as, as a president, but just generally speaking, I've come to believe that. Um, on the, the larger question about influence and how you, who you listen to, um, I think you're totally right. I mean, when you have, um, when you have three at-large commissioners, six district commissioners, uh, you know, the, the at large, uh, is generally known to be a, a position that's maybe like easier in that you're not getting district requests from a specific area. You can kind of like give those requests to pe- to the district commissioners. You're really able to kind of sit back and 
from your vantage point kind of uh, survey this, whatever the situations are that you're considering and, and make a decision. Uh, but that's not often how it goes because it costs a lot of money to run a successful citywide race. I think we found that in the city council races in 2017, right? Like there was a lot of progressive movement and, and good progressive candidates won in a lot of places that were on the ground and maybe not as well funded, but at large candidates in the park board, uh, are the DFL endorsed at large candidates didn't win except for Commissioner French um, and folks that were able to raise a substantial amount of money did win um, in that race. And, and similarly with, with the mayor, I think. So, um, uh, so that's kind of uh, 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 just a, a reality of, of those positions. And then that, that shifts probably, you know, who you're listening to uh, prima facie um, on, on the issue of, of the encampments and who you're listening to there. I mean, that was unlike anything I, I certainly have ever experienced unlike anything uh, other commissioners say that they've ever experienced. I mean, we were getting like thousands of, of emails a day and it wasn't even necessarily from people. I mean, it was hard to start sifting through where they were coming from. It would, yes, we go, you know, you listen to neighbors, you go talk to people in the parks, you know, uh, people start talking about where they're coming from. You're getting emails. Some people are emailing you from other places with their moral point of view because they are focused on Minneapolis right now. You know, it's people from, I used to live in Minneapolis. I live in fucking, I don't know, Durham, North Carolina. And I can't believe Did Jono just say fucking on the Wedge Love podcast? <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. Continue. Uh, getting Continue. fired up. No, no. Uh, no, I shoot. want to say it. It's <laughs> the <laughs> end. I said it too. Well, I did, you didn't send me any uh, guidelines there. Is this like uh, primetime NBC? <laughs> I'm so sorry, John. Uh, <laughs> so I, all I'm trying to say is that we were getting a substantial number of uh, – Every, every commissioner was getting so more, more messages than you could ever really uh, synthesize uh, to understand. And, and yes, we were getting angry neighbors, many of whom lived in certain area of the city uh, that were frustrated. The other thing we were getting is not a lot of comprehensive uh, collaboration or support from other levels of government, more ready or experienced to help support these encampments. Uh, we had many frustrating conversations. Commissioner French would tell you the same thing with governor's office um, uh, about, you know, what kinds of supports we would get. You might remember that when folks moved um, from Powderhorn and it went back to the wall of forgotten natives, and then suddenly that disappeared pretty quickly. Um, you know, we were told all summer, there's no possibility for vouchers to get into hotels um, you know, that, that just doesn't work, that the system isn't set up to allow it to, to work out. Well, there are vouchers, but not for these folks that are in this park. When folks moved to the Wall of Forgotten Natives, they all got vouchers within, I think it was like a week or two. And then that site was shut down, you know, and fenced off and, and everything. Um, I, I, maybe I'm moving around a little bit, but what I'm trying to say is, uh, you know, there there's the influence of of people that maybe are loud. There's the influence of, um, uh, of, of what you want to do is doing the right thing for people. And then there's the influence of where power, money, and capital are um, and what collaboration you're getting from other levels of, of government that are frankly a lot more uh, influential than, than the parkour is. 
Yeah, I think, you know, that's definitely one point that I I think is important to note is that it, you know, I think it's a, a tragedy that it fell to the park board to try to manage all of that um, because there are, you know, in terms of the county, in terms of the state, in terms of the city, um, you know, there are a lot of other organizations that should have been in a better place to deal with this. Um, you know, I, I point to this as, you know, another one of our, our mayor's failings over the past year is that he completely failed to step up and help his constituents. Um, you know, in Minnesota, to register to vote, you don't have to have a, a street address. You can say, I stay in this park. I stay at this bridge on the greenway or things like that. So these are very much citizens of Minneapolis and the constituents of, of all levels of our government. Um, And, you know, I'm sure that it was a really difficult time to try to figure that out. Um, I'm sure that nobody else in the park board has ever put together a manual for trying to deal with this. Um, but if you were to put that manual together going forward, what are some of the things that you would tell, you know, future President Cogill or um, right. other people coming onto the park board about how to how to deal with something like that? That's that's really good. Uh, well, first thing I'll say, in the late '40s, there was a permanent encampment system because a bunch of people who were in the army came back from World War II uh, and they did not have housing and they did not yet have jobs. And the park board did uh, support some encampments at that time. It's the only other time that I'm aware that that was the case. There wasn't a manual, I think, that was created. As, as far as I know, I didn't get any any other information there. But moving forward, the, the manual, I think, is getting in line some collaboration uh, to effectively support people. Now, that isn't something that is necessarily, uh, well, it's not easy to do because uh, folks that have really high needs, it's never going to look nice to, (laughs) you know, the people that want everybody to have a picket fence. Uh, It's, you know, when you're supporting folks that are really unwell or that are struggling with with a lot of of issues um, that have, uh, put them in a place where, where they're not, um, they're not able to support themselves or where they need a variety of other supports to, to, um, yeah. People who are struggling with capitalism, you can say that. Right. Sure. No, (laughs) thank you. So, uh, I guess what I'd say in, in the future is, um, a couple of things. Uh, one, I don't think that there's going to be a, a year like 2020, knock on wood, uh, for for a while, uh, in that we're not going to have a clomp confluence of circumstances like these unique ones, where we have a pandemic, we have, and I hope, I hope, maybe, maybe I'm wrong because we haven't really changed our policing system, but we we need we we had a pandemic, we had a governor's order associated with that pandemic, so we couldn't just tell people to leave, and we didn't have housing spaces for them. Uh, we had uh, the murder of George Floyd just weeks before folks moved uh, in the largest numbers to to, to Powderhorn Park, uh, in, a, in a, addition to many other encampments around the city. Um, 
So we had that reckoning. Uh, and we have an ongoing housing crisis. Uh, I guess in some ways, all three of these things are in so, kind of continuing, but but the p- pandemic is a bit more more under control. I could see in the future, though, we have a similar situation associated with climate change, where we have a substantial number of refugees coming to Minneapolis or Minnesota um, who don't have anywhere to stay, and we do not have the housing infrastructure to fully support them, and we need a way to do it. The, the thing that I would say for that manual is uh, for it to be effective and to actually support those people in the long term, uh, you need to line up uh, a variety of levels of government coordination to make sure that people are on the same page. I'm, I'm happy that Park Board stepped up in a small way uh, last summer, but we did not have those everybody lined up on the same page about how to support everybody. Um, and it led to a real failing in supporting people who are already really vulnerable. And I'm very sad about that. And I think it's a, you know, a pox on all of our systems continuing. Oh, it looks like my, uh, you guys still hear me? Yeah, you're, you're still here. Oh, great. Um, so uh, that's what I would say. I mean, you, you need to line up those supports. And uh, I don't think that... Um, unhoused people uh, are are going away from our park system. There are still many people who are unhoused who use our parks every day. Uh, we do not see them uh, as often as we did last summer. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're, they're not there and that they don't need uh, a variety of supports. Also saying the real goal is to get people housed. And one of the other uh, confounding factors around the housing crisis and the fact that we have a lot of unhoused people that we see in Minneapolis, it's like, well, why don't we see those in, that in other communities? Well, other communities have effectively zoned out the possibility of seeing unhoused folks. Right. Uh, they don't have services. They don't have housing. Right. Yeah. Right. So like people come to Minneapolis is because this is where there's some support for people who don't have resources. The reason they're I mean, not going to be in here. That's a reality. Yeah. It's true that we actually have some support systems and people do seek that out, even even broader than Minnesota, like people coming from South Dakota, North Dakota. Is it weird that you're hearing my voice twice on this episode? As a reminder, I'm doing a voiceover of an episode that happened a few weeks ago because I screwed up the audio, recorded it incorrectly, so I'm re-recording the audio and you will occasionally hear me as I recorded it on the day of, and you're hearing me as I'm re-recording it weeks later. I hope it's not confusing. Okay. Right here. I talk about the stakes in the election. They're pretty high. Jono has an opponent who, uh, whose response to homelessness, I guess, was to give a tour of trash in the woods that uh, she attributes to homeless people it's it's kind of a weird thing to do it's not really i don't know how that's a response to the problem advertising a trash yeah. tour on the nextdoor.com website you're running against a lowry hill fancy pants what are you going to deliver what is your agenda how does it differ from what is Jono going to deliver that's different from his opponent great question the stakes are pretty high. We have uh, a race that has a very clear 
separation. You have one person, myself, who's saying we need to work on perfecting our park system to make it that, so that everybody has a voice in determining what happens in our system, that we have equitable investments, not just in terms of like where we build new playgrounds, but in terms of um, who we're investing in. Are we giving jobs to young people? Are we investing in uh, programs that directly serve uh, in a wraparound way? Uh, people of color in our, our most disinvested neighborhoods. Um, I've been talking about that and fighting for that for my first term. I'll continue to do that. We're close to getting a pretty substantial investment uh, in those youth services here um, in our ask for the, to the BET. On the other side, you have my opponent who um, has raised, first of all, more money than any other park board candidate, including the at-large candidates like Commissioner Forney. Um, and whose major platform is essentially to privatize the parks. Uh, her platform is a friends group for every park. Um, friends groups are important infrastructure for the system. Uh, they're people that help with gardening, but they're the idea that every park would have uh, an influential uh, friends group that got to determine what happens in that park uh, is really problematic. And why do I think that's probably what's going to happen? Well, she has been the leader of the friends group at Thomas Lowry Park, which has a substantial influence over that park um, and uh, has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to rehab a fountain that was not even broken uh, in that park. Um, so what I'm imagining is uh, a erosion of the equity matrix that we use to determine where we're investing in new systems uh, around our park system. Um, and uh, I'm really concerned about that. Uh, I'm also really concerned um, that uh, we would have uh, somebody who's made it very clear that the wealthiest people are the ones that she's going to court for her support. Um, you know, she's raised mostly max donations from um, from uh, you know, folks from mainly uh, one area of the city and. Everybody deserves a voice. That's certainly true, but it's uh, it's concerning if, if you're not trying to build a coalition of people from across your district uh, to show that you are trying to serve everybody in your district. I hadn't heard the thing about the friends group, but it makes sense. I know Elizabeth Schaefer mostly is the person behind the Save the Seven Pools effort, which... Yep, Save the Seven Pools. Diverted... $200,000 out of a neighborhood org a pool of money that had previously been devoted to affordable housing. The thing you need to know about seven pools, it's, it's basically the front yard to some of the most expensive homes in Lowry Hill. No, it's nice, but it also means that park board uh, in our staff time uh, diverts time to helping support and manage project, manage that project as opposed to project managing other projects in other neighborhoods of the city. Um, you know, I did broach those concerns with this group when they were putting this together, they were very gung ho and, and I, they had support. And so I said, you know, you're going to raise a lot of this money. We'll, we'll work with you. Um, but the reality is when you have all sorts of groups advocating for that and saying, well, we've raised X number of thousands of dollars because the neighbors around this park, have that kind of capital, uh, you should drop everything to do this project. You're going to get, you're, we're just going to revert back to a time before our substantial historic 
neighborhood park plan funding um, and the discrepancies that we already still see across the system, just in terms of what a park looks like, just, you know, the, the prima facie sheen of, uh, of a new park uh, is going to get worse. Uh, and you'll see those discrepancies. Uh, okay. Right here. I make fun of Jono for saying prima facie. <laughs> I can't even pronounce it. Prima facie. He said it twice so far. It's, it's not very accessible language. I don't even know what it means. Okay. I ask him not to say prima facie again. Thanks. I don't know what it means. I don't Thank think anyone know. listening knows what it means. Don't say it again. It's something I've noticed about the way park board, the park board of engagement is it just, it's not the intention probably, but it naturally brings in, as Jason was saying earlier, the people who live near the parks and consider the park their backyard because it oftentimes literally is their backyard. It's right behind their house. Mm -hmm. And they will fight against things like uh, a basketball court replacing a tennis court, maybe, or putting Mm -hmm. in a basketball court at all. Yeah. Uh, Like a bike route so people can be safe biking on a parkway. Mm -hmm. Or maybe adding a skate park where, you know, we've got five baseball fields here that are always empty. Maybe we could put in a little skate park instead. Right. Things like that, I think, about who is served by the parks. Is it going to be the people who want them to be quiet and empty? Or, you know, maybe people who can't afford to live next door to a park. How do you fix the engagement process so it serves people who can't show up to that CAC meeting for three hours and badger the volunteers who are serving on that uh, community mm-hmm. advisory committee? <laughs> Uh, how, do, how do we i know i know you're more likely to listen to the people who aren't I, I, that's true but there's that's, there's that's a stake here yeah but how do, you, how do we make this better how do we make it better well there are a couple of ways uh one i mean you can create an engagement process that actually pays people for their time makes it worth their while and you ensure that you're uh getting a broader uh, representative cross-section of a community to, to serve on that community advisory committee. And I would say, you know, it's not bad that people care about their parks. It's not bad that people get engaged and advocate for, for improvements in the parks. What's uh, not a good sign is to see, um, uh, to, to see certain groups have maybe outside influence over what, what happens in that park. Um, and especially to see uh, the, the institution um, undercut community-led uh, initiatives that are by young people or young, especially young people of color. Like an example of that was the skate park that was set up uh, at Bede Makaska this summer um, in the spot where uh, the uh, building had burned down the refectory. Um, and because of some of our uh, legal reg- regulations, unfortunately, the, you know, the, this thing that was community led by youth uh, was dismantled we found a new site for it, but, you know, the summer is gone. Uh, you know, the, the, that impetus, that community energy uh, was dismantled. Um, and, and that's something that we need to advocate for changing how our system works so that we can support those things. We should support community-led initiatives um, that, that come from folks that aren't usually the ones using the, the current contrived system to um, to make change and, and activate a park space. Uh, and um, we are, uh, unfortunately, I think, 
just as institutions built to go and testify at meetings. Uh, there is a, a very unfortunate power dynamic there. You know, the board is up a foot from the rest of the people. If you go to a meeting, it's not collaborative. Um, it can be intimidating. So yeah, I think that there's a lot that can be done um, outside of our planning processes even uh, to just support community-led initiatives where it doesn't have to take us to uh, have this whole planning uh, situation where we appoint a community advisory committee or or anything like that, but we have staff that are recognizing and connecting with community members, uh, recognizing uh, how we can maybe undergird and invest um, the natural ideas of, of community members. Another example of that is like kids have been uh, in some places like tagging uh, park buildings. Uh, I think we should have all sorts of young people creating great art on all of our park buildings. Um, and this last year, because of some of the um, uh, COVID relief dollars, we've been able to fund some one-time murals that are buying for young people across the, the system. I hope we can do that a lot more of that where we, we're actually just putting money into things that we know are being created by the people that don't usually have an impact or voice in shaping what our parks look like. Um, but I'm not directly answering your question because there are still other systemic problems that allow for certain people who understand a system and those are usually white, um, more wealthy people um, to, to have an influence. Um, I'm not sure as long as we live in a, a system of, of capital uh, peddling that that's going to entirely go away. But what I do think is uh, refining and improving our community advisory committee process to actually fund um, people's time uh, would go a long way. Uh, and improving a quick yeah. a quick and easy answer you could have given to that was elect me and not my opponent because i i will listen to the right people and not the wrong people thank you for the comms right. advice you're right yeah i have so Thanks. much to say awesome. i'm just so excited yeah. to be here you know yeah. this is like my big moment <laughs> this fall <laughs> yeah how many how many times do you get to sit down for an hour on uh and give a an interview on youtube <laughs> Not often. Oh my God, this episode sucks so bad. I'm not sure I have the energy to keep doing the voiceover. I might just, uh, you know, give it up and let you listen to my voice on that terrible laptop microphone. Um, so one of my interactions with the park system that, that I like to talk about is, um, Many years ago, I lived at uh, 26th and Harriet in Whittier, right across the street from Whittier Park. Um, and I had a very small child at that time. Um, and I would see how many people would come to that park on the weekends, um, you know, or after school time, and sort of the makeup of that park. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that park specifically, but, you know, it's a kind of a big wide open space. There's a small playground area. Um, there's a baseball diamond, but there isn't a lot of shade. Um, there isn't a lot of um, real features that would draw you to it if it wasn't like the most convenient part to where you live. And then, you know, as you head west from, from there, even along 26th street, you know, you get, 
a little further west and you get to um, Mueller Park, which is a nicer park, has some, has a, a little kid pool, um, some trees and shade. And then you go further west and you get to, um, is it uh, Levin Park? Oh, right. Yeah, the triangle thing. Yeah, Smith yeah. Park. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, obviously you eventually run into the lake and you're very near to Kenwood Park. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the, um, how many people would go to Whittier Park because, you know, they lived in the apartment buildings near there. They lived on Nicollet. They lived uh, on Grand in apartment buildings. And then when you get over to um, near the lakes, people who already have giant yards um, have this massive park um, with all sorts of features and amenities. And how do you look at our system and say, you know, there are clearly, you know, things that we can do to help upgrade our parks for people who, who need them um, while, you know, having people like um, an at-large commissioner from that area, like Meg Forney, who is, just going to be pushing for more investment in the places that are already what I would look at and say are already exceptional. Yeah. So I grew up right by Whittier park. Uh, my parents were renters, uh, in a duplex on 25th and Garfield. And when I was really little, that's where I went. And, uh, it always was a dynamic space. It was also always, uh, a bit shabbier than other parks. And so one thing I'd mentioned here, it's not necessarily about like investment, like just number of dollars for a new thing. It's about the staff that show up to in, invest in the day-to-day maintenance of that space. So um, that's something that we need to improve. Uh, Park Board's done a little bit of work, but there, there's a lot more that needs to be done just to say, hey, there are some parks that get a lot higher usage um, from a, a lot of people. And those are the parks that need uh, not just the same number of staff as other parks, but more staff to be there uh, to help keep it up and, and improve it um, when it's getting just basically loved to death. Um, so that's one thing I'd say. It's not just about like, oh, we have the new amenity here. Uh, I mean, Whittier is a super dynamic place. It has all the programs that are associated with the community school as well as the rec center. Um, but uh, just having more caring adults there that love and respect that space and have relationships with those families uh, is, is going to go a long way. And that's something where, where that we need real equity, which means there need to be more of those people and more budget there than at Kenwood park. Um, So that's one thing I'd say, Uh, you know, what comes to my mind also is just that, you know, we have these dollars invested to, do a bunch of things at Whittier Park here in the in the near term. I'm excited about those things, um, but uh, from the commissioner perspective, uh, we have some good guidance right now to actually get those things done. And if we keep having advocates that are elected to that board who actually prioritize those neighborhood parks and not the the parks that have already had all of this investment not just from the city, but investment in time and energy and resources from people who have that time, energy and resource who just live by there. And the people that just have more time who, who live in, in those areas, which is great. 
uh, that should mean that then the park board has a little bit more of a, an ability to direct resources to the to the areas where there are people that don't have those time the, the, that amount of time, energy, and resource to to keep up those spaces. Um, so we can do more there, and that's only going to happen if you elect me as somebody who lives in Stephen Square, doesn't live on Mount Curve, uh, you know, grew up in Whittier, uh, actually, you know. Uh, has experienced the benefit of those parks growing up um, and, and recognizes that those investments are, are a priority beyond where we place trees being planted in Kenwood Park. There you go, Jono. You're mastering this. Vote for me, not my fancy pants opponent. Yeah, good answer. Okay, right here I talk about the thing that bugs me about Whittier Park. Just a big, wide open space with nothing in it, no people, just a big old baseball field. Nobody's ever playing baseball there. My big idea: fill it in with some trees. Mm. Mueller Park's full of people, yeah, hanging out, sitting under a tree, barbecuing. I'm not a landscape designer. What does Whittier Park look like going forward? I'd have to look at the master plan. There, there are new plans. Um, there was an attempt to put in a what's called like a an artificial turf, like premier quote unquote field there. Um, the reason being those fields just are better quality for people who are playing soccer and futsal and other pro sports like that, which are way more popular now than baseball is or kickball. Um, that did not pass. There was a lot of concern uh, about the environmental impact. And I think, unfortunately, some misunderstanding about the potential environmental impact of artificial turf. It actually, it might be net not like zero, but it actually might be actually better because you don't have to keep reseeding monoculture grass um, if you have this artificial turf. Um, but... Uh, I, I hear you. I have to look at what the exact plan is. I know there are plans for community gardens uh, along there. And I guess the other thing I'd say is I'd, I'd love to see um, uh, the school have a, a larger role in um, kind of guiding the plans for that, that, that area. They do use it a lot. I actually think that some of the school folks um, have been helping with watering some of the new trees that have been planted around that field. Um, so we could get them more involved and build on that energy that they have to keep the new trees that we have planted uh, alive. Um, that, that would be my goal. Do you remember uh, the conversation about uh, DuPont Avenue and the bike lane and the trees? And people were talking about this bike lane is going to take out some oh. insane number of trees. Right. Like, there's no way it's going to take trees. out all those trees. I think maybe uh, park staff had determined that there were some trees that were like questionable that they would have to look at. Maybe, maybe they would go, maybe they wouldn't. Uh, yeah, it was like two that? or three. Yeah. It was going to be two or three trees. I think it was two or three that would have had to for sure have been removed. But that, I think the number that they, people were putting signs out was like they were going to destroy 50 trees or 60. Yeah, there were so many trees. Like you could, you could have told me that, and I'd be like, "Wow, that's a lot of trees. Maybe we shouldn't do that." Because no, there's no bigger supporter of trees than me. And when we have these conversations where people make up lies about how many trees are going to be destroyed by a bike lane, and bike lanes and trees, they simply can't coexist. 
so many trees. If you'd told me that many trees, I would have said, screw the bike lane. Let's save the trees. People need to stop lying about trees. Like we don't have this conversation about parking spaces. Like if we removed these parking spaces, we could put in so many more trees. We don't ever have that conversation. Given over so much space to cars, and we just take it for granted that that space should always be devoted to cars, whether anyone uses it or not, whether there's traffic or parking demand on that that parkway or not. Uh, I know you've been on the right side of these issues, and this is another case where sending Jono back is hugely important because I get the sense that uh, his opponent's going to go the other way. Yeah, that could be the case. I, I don't. I did. I would say there was not a lot of support um, from uh, some folks in uh, my maybe more Western uh, constituency for um, closing of the parkways, but uh, in how we did it, the process. But once it happened, it was widely popular uh, across a lot of different groups of folks in my in my district, and uh, I know we did it. You know, for the purposes of having people spread out during COVID, um, but it's just one example of how just bold action to just do something uh, that is a demonstrable improvement for the general public um, can can be a successful way of showing people that there is a different future possible. Um, we have all sorts of plans for reducing parking space in our different parking lots. Um, that's one way to propose a change, but we've found recently that it's backfired, uh, with our planning processes. I, I think the DuPont example is a good one that you brought up. I'd for, kind of forgotten about how frustrating that one was, um, because it just got derailed by how we put it out there, not being able to fully answer questions correctly or like, or quickly, uh, being unclear about how many trees were going to be removed. And then suddenly a really good plan gets completely scuttled. Oh, I'm just incredibly tired. I already spent 90 minutes with Jono. Now I got to spend another 90 minutes with Jono. On top of editing this together, that's, what is that? It's like four and a half hours of Jono. Okay, here here I'm teasing Jono about using the word riparian on his website. I don't think this joke lands. It maybe it'll land better as I as I narrate it. Uh, I think it means like uh, banks of a river. Why would you use that word? No one's going to know what that means. Uh, you know, I've been saying riparian, but maybe I'm wrong. I really don't know. Uh, I well, you know, occasionally I go to uh, neighborhood meetings and I get quizzed about the names of plants, um, and. Uh, you know, some question about, you know, what do I know about our natural environment? Uh, so I occasionally like to uh, be specific about uh, what I'm talking about uh, with the terms that are used by the people that actually uh, plan these things so that people can see that I'm taking this seriously and I do understand okay. the tenets of the okay. issue. And a riparian surface is, is the areas of kind of natural planting around uh, water bodies, and it's helpful to make the water a lot cleaner um, and uh, enhance habitat as well. Are you trying to prove how smart you are by using 
Yeah, is there is there a, a calendar in your house somewhere that has words like riparian and prima facie and things like that? On it? Word of the uh, day. You know, I grew up with educators in my family, and I sometimes just the words they they come out that way. I I don't know. <laughs> I I need to like unlearn something. Okay, here I'm asking Jono about a section on his website about opportunities for black owned businesses in the parks. There are certainly ways to do that. Well, one, we could permit and waive the permitting fees for people to sell wares in parks. Um, An example that comes to mind recently, and this is maybe, well, it's just the example that comes to mind. Uh, Pride this year, uh, I bike up to Pride, uh, and there are folks that just out the back of their car are selling, you know, slushies, uh, you know, effectively like Italian ices icing ices um okay here i make a joke about trunk slushies the technical term is trunk slushies trunk slushies uh may or may not have had some additional you know uh imbibing uh uh liquid in them but uh fantastic and they should be supported by our park system um, yes, we should have more like coffee carts. Uh, we should have more stands, especially downtown that, are, you know, food trucks, et cetera. We do support some of those. Um, I'm really proud of the, the sous chef investment, but that was a substantial investment to get the Owamni restaurant down there. That, that's fantastic. And, and we, I'm glad we did that investment. We just can't replicate that over and over again, you know, efficiently. But what we can do more efficiently is set people up uh, to to be able to go out and sell uh, at the busiest park sites um, and and maybe come up with a a better plan for how to make it worth their while. So, you know, there are currently permitting fees and, uh, you know, with our restaurants, there's a percentage that comes back to the park board, you know, for infrastructure, uh, et cetera. It's a revenue generating machine. Um, But the park board could be a real incubator space for for some of that, especially at our most, uh, our busiest sites. Um, you know, as a person of Latinx descent, I would, uh, strongly encourage this line of thinking that you're on. Um, you know, like if you go to a lot of cities, um, you know, in Southern California, you know, you, you find many people with, um, tamale carts or things like that, you know, and those are very easy businesses for, for people with, not a lot of capital to to start um and especially if you can follow that up with you know a a city program to allow them to you know be able to sell without having to pay heavy permitting fees and things like that um you know having obviously food trucks have expanded massively in minneapolis and um, that's also an area that i think a lot of um, black owned and um, Asian owned and Latinx owned people sort of can get boxed out of, um, you know, they're not always the first choices of people who are running, um, breweries and things like that. So, you know, I think if the park board can help with that sort of thing, that would be amazing. Yeah, I I appreciate that. I think that's right on and, you know, we've, we've made some strides, but we still have a lot of opportunity 
with big events. For example, uh, Holodazzle is a really big event uh, in Loring Park. It didn't happen last year. I, I do hope it comes back. Uh, there's a beer garden, um, and it's a it's a lucrative thing to have that beer garden. Um, now, there aren't a lot of uh, indigenous or black-owned uh, uh, liquor-making establishments or beer-making establishments in Minneapolis, but there are a few, um, and the park board can do a better job of prioritizing um, those folks to, to, to get those spots and, um, and, and build upon that. I, I think you're, you're right on. And we're way behind in the Midwest, generally speaking, looking at the informal economies out on, especially in LA and San Francisco. I used to live in San Francisco. I mean, there are people, you just walk down Valencia street, there's people selling things out of the back of their cars or just like out of a suitcase all the time. And it happens to be like the most delicious food on the street. Uh, so there's just a lot more that we could do here to support that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the park police. So the park board has a police, there's a park police department. How many officers does the park police have? I believe, uh, that, well, we have budgeted 34 officers. I believe that right now there may be only 30 active officers. As, uh, have they had people, have officers quit, like uh, MPD has had officers quit? You know? um, I think that we have a, I, 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 sh I shouldn't say too much because I don't know the details for sure. I, we have not experienced okay. the same levels of, of, of attrition right. issues that the city has experienced. And so should there, should the park police... Should we defund the park police and invest in other forms of uh, public park safety? Is there a parallel effort happening at the park board similar to creating this Department of Public Safety? I know when we talk, at least when I talk about this with other people in terms of the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, it often comes up and I, it occurs to me that if we just eliminated the police department entirely, you'd have the uh, Hennepin County sheriffs, for example, potentially coming into the city. And if there are bigger assholes in the world than Minneapolis police officers, it would be Hennepin County sheriff's deputies. And so wouldn't you prefer to have that work done by a Minneapolis police officer operating under the city's uh, structure, theoretically, than bringing in those deputies? Yeah. Similar points brought up by some of the candidates I've talked to for park board this year say, well, wouldn't we rather have a park police department handling this under our authority than to have Minneapolis police officers come in and do this work? So yeah. as long as we have a one, one, one structure where people are sitting in a park and there's an issue that they have and they can call somebody and expect a response, I would want to have, uh, a staff person, if it's a peace officer, so be it, that is responsible reporting to a staff member that's under the jurisdiction of the superintendent and therefore has to report to the park board as opposed to somebody, especially right now under the current city system, uh, that does not have to report to the park board at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, that is true. I think that more broadly, the park board is committed to moving uh, beyond policing and ensuring that we have the right people responding to 
issues in the park system and getting ahead of issues by having caring adult role models in all of our parks that know the kids that are in the neighborhood by uh, ensuring that we have active parks that have eyes on the street and are generally safer spaces overall. Um, And by expanding this new team that we have, the Community Connections and Violence Prevention Team, which really is kind of a similar model to what is being proposed in, in the city of Minneapolis, where you have really community workers. We have a street reach team. These are just, these are folks from our community, by our community that know people in the neighborhoods, uh, that build relationships um, and can identify issues and get them connected with, get people who are struggling connected with the services they need and that do not carry a gun. Um, So we're investing in those things and I think we need to continue to invest more. Um, I'm also, you know, really of of the opinion that you know police are going to come into our parks sometimes and that's something that we need to get away from but as long as they are coming into our parks i'd rather they be people that are supported or that are directed by our superintendent so the times when i've seen uh park police or parks typically been for someone who's in emotional distress having a mental health issue that's I, yeah. Those are the kinds of things I see. Is is that something you think the park police should be responding to? Uh, I think that overall, the part the that we should have mental health responders responding to people that are in mental and emotional distress. I think police should be there if we know that there is a gun on the premises. Perhaps you know that, and and that does happen. We have had those issues. Um, our police have done good uh, search and rescue for folks that are uh, having suicidal uh, ideation. And uh, that's something that's not reported very often, but it's something that, that happens. And we've had good, good experiences uh, with, with folks there. Does that mean that they have to be armed police? I don't think necessarily. I think that's a discussion that the board should have. I've tried to progress that discussion over the last four years, haven't gotten as far as I wish. Um, But there are some cities that have park rangers. And uh, I don't think it's the worst idea uh, to have folks that are in our parks keeping people safe to also kind of know about parks. You know, like know maybe a little bit about uh, what like natural spaces, maybe be able to do some educational programs in addition to keeping our parks safe. Um, so I'm a proponent of, of looking at that. There's a model in LA. Um, there's a model in Denver. Uh, we should investigate that, but I can't do it alone. I need to get people on board with a, a collective vision for what that would look like. Okay, right here I'm asking about redesigning the park police uniform. Oof. I feel bad yeah. for anyone who has listened to this deep into the episode. I'm sorry. It did fizzle out. Um, it was uh, disappointing to me. There was a plan to redo the uniforms, uh, change them to green. Uh, the park staff uh, came back with a proposed uniform. Um, it looked good uh, in my estimation. Um, they uh, attached kind of the staff potentially kind of a proposed price tag to that. Um, At the time, people were really following the park board very closely. 
And there was a lot of agitation about um, investing anything in police. Um, and as a result, we did not get the votes we needed to um, pass the investment. And so we still have three. Here I talk about uh, not being able to tell the difference between Minneapolis police officer and a park police officer. Same uniform. Once they're out of the car, you can't tell the difference. They're in the same union and they're trained by the same folks. Um, the uh, best, one of the best things that under President Bourne's leadership that he did uh, along those lines was get the park police to change their cars so at least they didn't look exactly like MPD cars. You you know when there's a park police officer, it's huge park police on the side, but there's more that needs to be done. Here I toss it to Jason, who typically has a defund the police poster behind <laughs> them. Let's see what Jason has to say. Um, yeah, you know, I had a an extended conversation last summer with um, our mayor about, you know, watching unhoused people being forcibly removed from spaces where, you know, they had all of their belongings, their shelter, basically all that they had to, to, to consider anything as a home and, you know, watching um, police come in with bobcats um tearing down tents, destroying property, things like that. And one of the things that he hid behind constantly is like, oh, no, no, those aren't MPD. Those are park police. Uh, that's the park police that are doing this. And, um, you know, for being as, as pro-police as he is, he was very quick to throw the park police under the bus for that. Um, but when you, certainly you, you know, I know that you're, somewhat active on, on social media and things like that. When you see these videos and you see the ways that park police treat our most at risk citizens, like what, what do you take from that? And how do you go back to the superintendent and your fellow commissioners? And like, what does that conversation look like? Yeah. Uh, it's, anger and despair and frustration uh, that keeps happening. Um, so uh, on that specific issue, you know, when we saw early last summer, um, the, the first uh, attempts at removal that were terrible and poorly executed, you know, I was told, well, we're coordinating with the city and county to you employ the correct tactics in this because we've never done this before. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and it was the request of myself and a few other commissioners, including commissioner French, uh, to not use, uh, police, uh, in, uh, if we are going to tell people that they need to leave to not use police, um, that didn't happen. Uh, in a lot of cases, we, we, we attempted or the staff attempted to, to bring other people in. We got some folks saying, this isn't in my job description. I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm not going to tell people to leave. You have to make the police tell people to leave. Um, so there was some organizational, uh, you know, back and forth there. Um, but, but in the end, 
uh, how I, I felt after seeing some of that was major frustration and despair in a sense that, well, we just don't have the correct tools in the toolbox um, to adequately support these people. It's a, in, in an untenable situation. And we have uh, the trained peace officers that are not, they do not have the, the, the skills or experience or background to adequately and humanely work with our most vulnerable neighbors. Uh, we also haven't developed the alternative that's going to adequately support those people. Um, that's why I'm a big proponent of uh, having a public safety department in the city of Minneapolis, somebody that has to think more broadly than um, kind of the uh, epistemology of policing and think of a different way about how do we know what safety is? What is safety? Well, we can't think about it as good guys and bad guys. We have to think about it as a public health failing. Uh, and that's why I'm really hopeful that we get to having a public safety department that um, is led by somebody who thinks more broadly uh, and is maybe informed a little bit better and is able to develop the tools that we need so that when we do have unhoused folks, uh, we can approach them in a way that's humane and in a way that builds trust um, and that isn't con uh, immediately confrontational and violent. Um, and I think that the park board is maybe onto something not to again, bring this up, but to bring up our community connections and violence prevention team, they have developed those relationships. They did it last year when we permitted encampments and had some successful relationships with some of the permanent encampments and they've done it again this summer. Um, and it's because they're not coming in there with, with police. And uh, it's very clear that that's, that their role is to develop those relationships and they've built trust. Um, there's more to be done. There's, there's definitely more investment that needs to be made, but I'm really hopeful from seeing that success, that that's a model that'll work. So uh, with that, was there ever a point last summer where you were just like, you know what, our, our peace officers are failing at, at keeping the peace. Um, we are continuing to put the people who live in Minneapolis who have the absolute least in a situation where they're losing the tiny bit of stability and security that they have. Um, was there a point where you looked at it and said, maybe we just need to back off until we have a better system to deal with this. And if so, like who pushed back on that? And, you know, who, who said, no, we have to continue to kick people out of encampments. Um, I and, said no know, for two and a half months that summer until we passed the nine hour resolution doing the permitting system. Um, and who pushed back a lot of people more than half the board, um, many folks at the city level and at the county level as well um, that did not see this um, going well and didn't think that we should have provided support for those folks in the first place. Um, and, you know, the, the, the two real points for the park board in the summer from the board's perspective are allowing folks to stay in the parks. And that was a six two vote. And then uh, creating the permitting system. And that was 
the 90 vote. And that uh, permitting system only was something that we finally developed and had come forward after getting essentially all the board members saying, well, we need to do something else. We can't just let people um, stay, stay here. So I would say that those were, those were the two points. And then in between, I mean, it's talking that I, you know, as many of our staff did or many of our commissioners did saying we shouldn't be using uh, police uh, in any of this, but I could never get a vote for telling them to stop that there wasn't support for that. So uh, it was a very, very challenging and not good time. And I don't think that it was necessarily, I, I mean, I'm not proud of how those interactions went and I'm pretty despairing about the entire result there. But I also think that if the park board hadn't done anything or stepped up, um, you know, we wouldn't have permitted any sites and we wouldn't have confronted the issue and, and, and really shown how, <laughs> how to the full public, you know, I had, there were encampments in my, the wealthiest areas of my, uh, district. Um, I, I think it was a good thing that this was front and center and still is front and center. I think it's more front and center than it was certainly three years ago when we were just kicking people out of parks, uh, with no notice always. That's what was happening. And it was police doing that all the time. And now, you know, this year, based upon all of the failings of last year, police do not kick people out of encampments. It's our community connections and violence prevention team connecting with people. Um, so that's a, a big shift. I mean, it's not a perfect shift. It's not, you know, a solution, but it's a big, it's a big change. Yeah. And, Jason, you're satisfied with these answers? Um, <laughs> I, I'm satisfied with the answer that one individual commissioner can give. I'll say that. Um, I, I guess, what do you look at then after having seen this? Like, how do you approach the park police and say, you know, I saw this video of you and this is what you're doing. Clearly, you, you feel justified in that and that you feel this is okay. Like, what do you look at then to say, we're going to stop this from happening? We're going to, mm -hmm. you know, clearly our mayor and our chief of Minneapolis police are very resistant to being transparent or to making, um, making known what discipline issues there are mm -hmm. or training issues there are. Mm -hmm. How do you as, as, you know, the head of the park board approach that? That's a great Great thought or question here. I think that uh, a couple things that I'd say. I mean, one is that it gets me back to thinking about uh, wh whether or not I'd want MP MPD to be coming to the parks because what it makes me think is, you're right, I don't want to have to deal with or have any association or authority over uh, what I think is a broken approach to public safety, which is policing. I just think it's not an effective approach to public safety. Um, that said, we have, we have these police, we have either our park police again, that report to our superintendent and that have, 
you, you know, have to report to the board. Or we have MPD who, you know, I'm absolved. I, you know, something happens in our parks and the, the police do something bad. They drive on the land, harass somebody. There's something terrible that happens uh, at the hands of police. You know, we can, the board can say, well, not our, that's not our issue. Um, and maybe that is, maybe that is the way to go. Uh, I guess the, the tack that I've uh, kind of found is that it would, it would be better to, um, as long as we have this structure, it would be better to have um, those folks have to be reporting to our, to our staff. But um, you bring, you bring up a, a very good point. I mean, it's not uh, the, the reality of having this police force is, is partly to maintain the independence of the park board. It's partly that's part of the, the purpose of it. There's a quick question. Who can fire the park police chief? Um, I, I think that our, uh, the, the general, uh, agreement would be it's the superintendent. So the superintendent is kind of the mayor figure there. The superintendent is the, yes, correct. So the superintendent is hired and fired by the board. Um, but outside of that, it's the superintendent who hires and fires his, his staff. Now one might make the argument and I won't say that some commissioners maybe haven't made an argument that then by proxy, the board should be able to direct the superintendent, um, to, you know, hire or fire X, Y, or Z person. Um, I got to say that I would be, um, very, careful and concerned about what that would do to the organization. The, the board is set up to be a guiding board of nine commissioners that hires the superintendent and sets policy. Um, if the board was to become an organization that, um, that was more closely involved in the operations of uh, everything in the in the system, uh, I think we'd need to reset the entire thing to be more like a city council or something like that. Okay. I'm sorry that we've uh, kept you here for 85 minutes. And I apologize to all of you for keeping you here for 85 minutes. This is, this is just awful, awful, awful. Uh, I have to tell you about the ice and snow at Mueller Park. It's, it's <laughs> terrible. I am not confident in the park board's ability to to clear ice and snow from the sidewalk. It's, it's not, not working. Our little, uh, our, our you know, it's not working. Brushers aren't working that like pollute the, that leave all those little blue brushes and bristles all winter. Yeah. I, I know someone who makes art out of those. They, they find them and they uh, make art from them, but it's not working. It makes me not confident that the city could do municipal clearing. The park mm -hmm. board has tried that in microcosm and it's not working. And I'm now I'm skeptical of uh, socialism in general. So, <laughs> I'll take that back to our assistant superintendent. I mean, we have all these little, we've invested in those, those things to brush off the snow also at, at our ice rinks. Um, and they are more efficient in that you can do it more quickly, but one on the sidewalks, it doesn't really work. It just like creates an ice sheen. And then two, uh, it's leaving these bristles everywhere. And on the lake, it's really not, uh, it's not good. It's not good. 
Yeah, so are you going to take care of that? Or are you going to fix it? What, what can I, we do? I brought it up with the uh, with our, our senior staff. Uh, they said that they were going to talk to the manufacturer first about how they were going to improve that. I don't care. I don't yeah, care about the bristles. I just want safe sidewalks, Jono. Well, then maybe we're going to have to invest in uh, thermo heating under each one of our sidewalks so that we never have to shovel them. Okay, right here I ask if Jono's dog is named after a former Vikings quarterback. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a mashup. He's he's named after a former Vikings quarterback and after a uh, really dark poet. His name is Dante Alighieri Culpepper. Okay, he didn't misspell the name because it's a mashup. It's uh, it's it's Dante, not Dante. It's a very interesting thing for all of you to learn. <laughs> uh yeah dante culpepper one of the uh not great but really really uh had high hopes for him back in the day okay here we talk about football i should just cut this out well he broke his leg you know i mean he had some health issues so what are you gonna do but but he i i think maybe his only real his only real uh claim to fame is that he had Randy Moss on his team and i don't think he would have been as good without him true yeah do you have any uh, closing questions well first i'd like to note that that was a good bit of divine comedy from you there john um and then uh i would also like to to just tie it back to the beginning of our discussion here um you know, talking about uh, a park board meeting coming to fisticuffs, if there were some sort of park board battle royal, where would the smart money be, Jono? <laughs> I would I would say uh, probably Latricia. She heckled me. Uh, so my money is on Latricia. She's got she burns with a with a fire. I, I can see a fire inside of her. She does. I would. I would also highlight uh, Commissioner French's uh, knowledge, deep knowledge and history of uh, WWE and just wrestling in general. Um, so I, I might. I might be in his camp. You, you know where I would also, put my money? Where? Go. I would put my money on Meg Forney because she fights dirty. <laughs> Brad, Brad Brad Bourne is the one you got to watch out for. I think. Because I've seen him derail a park board meeting before they even set the agenda. It takes him 30 yeah. minutes to even like approve the agenda. Brad that is, is a that's some jujitsu right there. Yeah, he's a he's a master. Like Latricia versus Brad Bourne, that's that's a death match right there. That's what I want to see. Hey, haven't you seen it? Did you, did you not watch the uh, December meeting I mean, of 2018? It's it's every meeting. Yeah, I think I've seen that. It was. It was so bad that I clipped some clips from it, and I'm like, I, this is just going to upset people. I, mean, I can't even put this out. That's how bad it was. It's too hot for Wedge Live. It's going to depress everyone. Yeah, I'm going to have residual PTSD from the last four years for a while. I haven't processed any of this, so I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to do it. So, Jason, we, we can tell you don't watch enough park boards saying make Forney, make Forney's the weakest character. I, I am telling you, she fights dirty. She will find every underhanded trick in the book to, to come out on top. You're not going to be president next time, right? That is correct. I will not. Okay. I, I do not. Okay, Jono, we're co we've come to the end. Thank you for sticking around for almost 90 minutes. I bet you're exhausted. 
I, I am so just excited. I'm going to be buzzing for a long time. But thank you, John. Thank you very much, Jason. It was great to talk. Oh. I appreciate it. Wait, we're not done. Oh, yeah. We're not done. Oh, okay. Okay, this is where I ask Jono to give us things that are making him happy. And this episode's not going to make anyone yeah. happy. I apologize. Yeah. But let's let's hear what Jono has to recommend to everyone else. Three things that make me happy. One, I like to play basketball at Stephen Square Park, hang out with a lot of kids there and, and neighbor neighbors. That's great. Always brings me some joy. Uh, a second thing, something I've been watching. I don't really watch a lot of television, but my girlfriend did get me into watching The White Lotus, which I have enjoyed. And, uh, and then... Um, Third thing that may, gives me some joy, you know, I go to the dog parks with Dante, and I enjoy that. Especially the Narnia of dog parks. If you haven't been, it's quite incredible. Even if you don't have a dog, that is uh, the Mini Haha dog park. It just goes on forever. Okay, I want to apologize to my co-host, uh, to our guest, John O'Cowgill, president of the park board. He's running for re-election. He's going to be on your ballot. Um, hopefully I don't screw up the sound again. This was, this was awful. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jono. But I am your host, John Edwards. This has been the Wedge Life Podcast. This is a real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.